0: hi everyone welcome back to day two of our 10 days 10 Mahler symphonies project today we're going to be talking about of course the the second symphony we hope you got a chance to check out the first yesterday or if you're i don't imagine everyone's going to be keeping up with with uh the 10 symphonies in 10 days necessarily, so whenever you happen to get to this one, you're in for quite a treat. We've we've got the second symphony for you today, a lot of people's favorite Mahler symphony of all time. I'm going to split this actually into two segments. We'll, we'll release them both today, but uh, it's such a long piece and there's so much to talk about, I just don't think I'm going to be able to get it all into one, so I'll release... One, right now, about the the first four movements, and then we'll dedicate an entire episode, which will come out later in the day, to the last movement, which is uh, a stunning work in and of itself. So a little bit about the second symphony. This was something that was written over the course of, of many years. Mahler usually wrote his symphonies pretty quickly, in one or two years. But this one was written over the course of seven. Um, and he wrote the first movement the first movement was originally conceived we'll talk about it a little more when we when we review the 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 first movement itself but it was originally conceived as a piece in and of itself and was written early in in 1888 he then decided that maybe this would serve as the first movement of a new sympo- symphony his second symphony and so he wrote the second third and fourth movements the other three that we'll be reviewing on this first Portion in 1893, and then in 1894, he was at the funeral of of one of his friends, a famous conductor, Hans von Bülow, and he heard a choir singing at this funeral, and he thought he conceived of a choral finale, fifth movement to this what would become his second symphony, and so the compositional process for this piece took a a long time. Unlike the first that we talked about, it underwent significantly fewer revisions, so by that point, it was pretty much in the form that we know it today. Now, this symphony is titled Resurrection, and we'll certainly talk a lot about the program of this symphony when we review some of the music, but it, we should mention from the outset that Mahler was pretty famously obsessed with and, and terrified with the prospect of of death, and this symphony really tries to ask a really... Difficult metaphysical question: What 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 is the meaning of life and and death? Mahler himself was quoted in saying that this symphony was really asking the question of what is this life and this death? Is there a hereafter for us? So it concerns this kind of these metaphysical life quest- questions and also the eschatological question of uh, is there. Is there heaven? Is is there life after death? Things like that, and he tries to grapple with this question in this symphony. So it's it's quite a heavy uh, narrative subject matter for him to take on, but but makes for an incredible piece. Mahler looked in the Bible and elsewhere for an answer. This isn't the other really interesting thing about this piece is that, as we mentioned. Yesterday, and and when we introduced this cycle, Mahler was himself born Jewish, but over the course of his life, he had an interesting relationship with religion. At one point, he was forced to convert to Catholicism in order to hold a job in Vienna. But his relationship with Christianity, with Judaism, with religion in general, was was interesting, complicated, and so this piece clearly has... Christian undertones, which which you might not necessarily expect from from someone who is so culturally Jewish for so much of his life, but it creates an added layer of, of interest here. And I should mention that in, in looking in the Bible and other sources, he kind of came to his own answer to the question of, is there life after death? And so he composed most of the text himself that the choir actually sings in the last movement, which we'll get to on the second part of today's overview, but uh, the, the main takeaway for the entire symphony was that there are, he was searching for answers to this question both in the Christian liturgy and elsewhere, and he kind of developed, and a lot of that bleeds into what we hear in this symphony, but there are also Mahler's own personal infusions, and so it's kind of a fusion of his own thought, of modern thought, and of, of ancient Christian thought. This symphony, unlike the first, was an immediate success in Mahler's life, and although I don't know why the first wasn't also, it's very easy to see why this one was. So we're going to explore Mahler's kind of uniquely individualistic and incredibly profound answer to these, these interesting philosophical, eschatological questions, and we'll start by diving right in to the music of the first movement. So as I mentioned, the first movement originally was composed kind of as a standalone piece. It it was conceived originally as a tone poem of sorts. It's interesting that Mahler conceived of so many pieces as tone poems that eventually became parts of his symphonies, and he never actually wrote any tone poems, but this was one of them. It was originally called Totenfeier, which, which means something like funeral rites, that's still the name that some people attach to it, much like the names that are loosely attached to the movements of the First Symphony. And Mahler himself described the the loose program of this movement as a, a tragic hero, some sort of hero. Maybe Mahler himself is lying in state at their own funeral and there's flowers surrounding them. But it's it's the scene of... Mahler even talked about envisioning himself lying lying in state at his own funeral. And that was the kind of image that he had when he conceived of this, what, what in practice is a funeral march. And interestingly, Mahler also in one of his quotes connected... I mentioned uh, on the episode yesterday about... How much of Mahler's work is tied together through self-quotation, and it kind of creates this one interconnected uh, entire output of the of the ten symphonies. And Mahler himself connected in a quote the first movement of this symphony with with the previous first symphony in its entirety. We we went through this struggle to triumph of this tragic hero who who potentially we we think dies and then ascends to heaven or finds some sort of, of salvation. And now we find ourselves beginning of the second symphony at this same tragic hero's funeral. And so it's almost like the first symphony is a picture of a hero that the actual personal struggle, youth uh Maturity, struggle, death, and and uh, some sort of salvation for this hero. And the second symphony now, we're looking at what does this mean about humanity? Let's ask even larger metaphysical questions of what is life in its entirety? What is death? Not necessarily constrained to one person. So we start looking at this... Coffin, this uh, hero lying in state, and we hear a funeral march. And it's a funeral march is usually in the minor key, and if, as as is indicated by the title, it's it's a march, so it's at a tempo that you could walk to. And it's as though someone's carrying a casket. There's there's a rich tradition of funeral marches in the in the austro Germanic tradition of composing and. This one, like many of Beethoven's, is in C minor. Here's how this first movement opens. So as we might expect from a Mahler first movement, interestingly, even in what was conceived as a tone poem and a a march-type movement, this unfolds in sonata form, something that I mentioned yesterday and I've mentioned before on the podcast. Again, all we need to know about that is that we have two contrasting themes, and again, I talked yesterday about how Mahler maximalizes the contrast between themes often. And he certainly does that here in the context of a such a intense, tragic, overbearing almost funeral march. Then we get this incredibly lyrical uh, second theme that just transports you to an entirely different world. Here's, here's the first time we hear that, that theme. again we hear one of these quintessential elements of Mahler that even in this lyrical theme there are these performance markings that ask the performers to make these these swells of of passion of pain they feel out of place in what we think of as a really buttoned up refined genre of of the symphony but as we've mentioned Mahler is is not concerned with with adhering to rules or refinement he he marks all of these moments where there's these outbursts of passion and intense swells and and that's that's part of part of the fabric of all of this music and then we get to our first key moment in the symphony not that any moment before this hasn't been key but our first formal key moment and here out of nowhere we've mentioned the idea of breakthrough yesterday and a Malerian breakthrough, I'll review it again because it happens so often in this piece, is the idea that we're going along in in a standard form and suddenly we see, inserted into the form, There's we, we we like break through the form and we get this vision of something to come, something that came before. It's like when you've slipped into a different state for a moment before you snap back in, to the formal reality. And so after the second theme, we hear our first breakthrough moment. And sometimes we don't know that these are breakthrough moments. We just have to listen carefully and try to commit the themes to memory because they come back way, way in the future. That's why we're breaking down these symphonies for you. We've, we've already done the work. Uh, here's, so here's the first breakthrough moment. So this breakthrough actually is both a, a quotation and a self-quotation. This looks back to the first symphony, the last moment of the first symphony. If you remember, we had these three breakthrough moments in the first symphony where we, we heard this motif that sounded like this. And then it continued... that this, this, the beginning of that motif is actually taken from Liszt from one of his tone poems and it's supposed to be the motif of, of the cross or something like that and here we hear in a slightly different key, key the exact same idea and then it continues in a different way The first three notes are what, what we need here, and that's it's this Motif of the Cross. So actually, our first breakthrough moment is a hearkening all the way back to, to the first symphony. Um, an incredible moment that that this becomes one of the themes of the first movement, and also it's important to know that this is considered a cross motif, one of the first of what will be many quasi-Christian uh allegorical devices that, that Mahler uses in this piece. So then, as we expect from from a sonata form, we get to the, the next big section of the form, which is called the development. And the development section is where Mahler really makes a lot of his, his hay in, in these pieces. Um, we hear some more of the funeral march stormy music, but then is he really starts to veer off with the form, and we get... A really interesting passage, this sort of pastoral passage in, in, in a totally distant key from what we, we are expecting. And this passage sets up several passages over the course of the whole piece where we find this kind of peaceful respite from, from all of the tumult. Let me play for you this passage. It's one of my favorite in the whole symphony. Here's how this sounds, middle of the development section. So what are we to make of this this exceedingly peaceful pastoral passage in the middle of of this funeral march? Well, Mahler left us a clue as he often does. This in the score this this passage is marked with with the heading Marischele which which means calm calm of the sea uh, in, in German and this could be a reference to a, a poem by Goethe, which Mahler was um, very, very familiar with the work of Goethe, as we'll see when we go, when we move into to later symphonies. But this poem by Goethe is actually called Todesstile, but they're, they're, these two ideas are connected. The translation of a, a couple lines from this poem is Terrible Silence of Death. In the dreadful vastness, not a wave is moving. And so this idea of death being represented as sort of a calm sea is something that that was clearly, or potentially in, in Mahler's mind, certainly in some form, because he gave it this heading, Merishtila. So then we we continue on in the development, and there's a couple other important moments I want to point out first is uh, we hear this cross motif again and I'll play for you that passage in a very different dramatic context than when we first heard it here's in the middle of some of this stormy funeral march music here's here's that passage So you often you have to listen carefully in Mahler because often these breakthroughs or these these moments where he quotes something from earlier, from later, happen incredibly quickly and they're buried. And so in the in the tumult of all of this section we you may have caught, we hear And then it continues on, but It's even slightly altered from what we had heard before. If it was in its original form, it would be... But, again, this is undoubtedly this cross motif that has made one more appearance referring back to earlier and referring back to the first symphony. But I want to call your attention to, I think, the most important moment in... This first movement, and again, it's kind of buried, but we get the most important Durchbruch breakthrough moment late in the development, and we don't know it yet, but this is foreshadowing, as Mahler so brilliantly often does. We see this glimpse of what's to come much, much later. Here's, here's the passage in question. in that passage. and so if you want to go back a minute or so and listen again, I'd encourage you to do that because that is such an important passage. First, we hear something, we hear this. Now this is important for two reasons. One, I'm sorry to spoil it, but this is a a foreshadowing to the last movement, but also this figure here is the beginning of what is called the Dies Irae in music. It's the universal symbol for death. It's the the chant that is sung in the Requiem Mass to, to represent the Day of Reckoning, which indeed this entire symphony is going to be about. So it's no mistake that the Dia Sire, this ancient liturgical chant, has made its way into Mahler's Second Symphony in a very profound way. But then we continue on, and we hear the cross motif again. If you noticed, it comes again. And then... It continues on, and then most importantly, we get this tiny glimpse. We hear this motif, and it gets quashed. But the one that we want to remember is, and that motif it comes and then you hear this cataclysm catastrophe but in fact we get that little window into what's going to be co- become what we might call the resurrection motif that will make up so much mon- that will come at so many incredibly important moments in the last movement and we just get this brief brief window into it before this cataclysm catastrophe and then we we slip back yet again into the Material reality, the harsh reality of the funeral march of the first movement. So then, as we might expect, we get something of a recapitulation and a coda, a very evocative coda. I encourage you to listen all the way to the end of the movement because there's this final painful sigh that we hear and then it ends with this kind of sputter. But it's an incredible first movement originally conceived as a standalone piece, but a fitting link between the kind of personal narrative of the first symphony and the philosophical, humani- you, you know, narrative of the second symphony that's meant to apply to larger questions that deal with, with all of humanity. So then we go on to the second movement. We take a big, long break. Mahler actually marks in the score to take a big, long break, after the first movement, it's always a little awkward for the conductor to just stand there. Um, but then you go on to the second movement, the one of the two scherzo movements. This is an andante, a kind of slower scherzo movement. And again, we find ourselves in what we might call a lendler, much like the first symphony. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this movement because in some ways it's the least relevant to the overall plot of the symphony it doesn't mean it's not a fantastic movement and really quintessential of of Mahler's Scherzi but I'll just play a little bit of the opening just so we get a taste of of this particular Scherzo-Lendler second movement So we won't spend much time on this movement, but I want to highlight one other passage, which will be great for our coming explorations into other symphonies of Mahler. One thing that he so masterfully does is he takes us on these journeys, especially in these scherzo movements, what it feels like kind of through the woods. The the woods, the forest has such a fantastical and also mystical connotation in German Romanticism. And so going through these kind of wanderings through the dark portions of the woods are are kind of loaded with with narrative content for a lot of these German romantics. And Mahler takes us on these incredible journeys where you, you hear the insects and they're very vivid. And so I want to play you a little portion of this this second movement that, that does just that. So like I said, it's a great movement. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it but I encourage you to listen to it. It's it's very much an enjoyable listen. And then we move on to the third movement, kind of a second scherzo movement. This this symphony is in five movements and so we, we had to add a movement somewhere and so we kind of get a second scherzo. And this movement has a very specific program again attached to it and it really adds to the narrative thread of this entire symphony. The the program is that of the the parable of Saint Anthony of Padua and the fishes. This is this is a story in the gospel about Saint Anthony, he he goes and preaches to fish in a river because his local church is empty and it's it's a parable I think that's meant to illustrate the the vanity and the kind of uselessness of trying to understand the world in a way these fish respond to what he's saying, but, but humans don't. It's this idea that humans are, are too vain creatures to be able to grasp the, the, these existential questions that we're trying to answer here in the symphony. And so they're equated essentially to aimless fish swimming down a river and it has this kind of satire on humanity element that we heard also in the third movement of, of the first symphony, and, so, it sets up. We're we're now kind of, we've we've heard the funeral march, and now we're hearing this music that's meant to, give us a message that, uh, it feels like all of this is all of this is in vain, and we don't have a we don't have a solution for, these questions of why are we living. What's the point of this? Is there a a life-after-death purpose to what we're doing here on Earth? And Mahler really vividly depicts this in the music. I want to play for you the opening, which starts with this announcement from the timpani and this kind of sardonic opening. It sounds a little nasty, but then we very quickly hear these fish swimming along, totally carefree, and it's like they're taking in with this... This preacher is saying, but they don't have a care in the world. They're not profound beings in any way. This is intentionally unprofound music. So we get some interesting music to, to open this that's really evocative of this this parable of Saint Anthony and the fishes, but then we get some really important breakthrough moments again in this movement, and I wanna highlight those cause again it will set up the the finale, which is the the master stroke of this whole piece so well and so here's the first one where we're going along and we're we're going along in this in the scherzo and suddenly we hear some of the scherzo music again but this time there's this kind of high whistling that's going on above it and this is going to be important this will this will come back later in the piece And then importantly, right after this passage, we get two fanfares, these bursts of energy and these brass fanfares. One that's that we were just in the key of C, we get one that ratchets up the key to D major. We talked, uh, this happened in the first symphony as well. Again, this is maybe an allusion to the, the first symphony where we went from C and we jerk right up into D major, this modulation to a higher key. And then we do that again, we, d- we go to E major and we hear the same music again. And these fanfares, it's like they seem to almost mean nothing. They're out of out of nowhere and he's just ratcheting up the key, but we don't actually know what these mean. But I'll play for you the second one where it goes to this highest key of E major. And then the, the fanfares turn out to be very important, but only in... In retrospect, and we'll we'll find out why. But I want you to listen to this fanfare in E major, but then the passage that follows, because also Mahler actually said about this passage, this is an E major, like the Meristela passage from the first movement, this calm, peaceful sea. But Mahler mentioned that he thought this was the most beautiful passage in the symphony, and it only comes this one time. We never hear this again, and it's sort of this this one moment of beauty in the all of the tricky, thorny questions that we're trying to deal with and answer here. So here's that fanfare, we hear it twice, this is the second time, and then the, the beautiful Mahler self-proclaimed most beautiful passage in this symphony that, that follows. <laughs> it's just such that is such great music I let it play there for a little bit I wish I could let it play for a little bit more even because it's it's so beautiful but then unfortunately we snap back the other music is great we snap back into the world of this scherzo we hear something called colenio which is where the the string players actually hit the strings with their bows and it creates this wooden sound this is another thing that Mahler loves to do he does it some in the second movement in, in this movement where he creates these very kind of natural uh, sounds that we might experience in, in everyday life. So things will jut out and sound off and sound... Uh, they'll surprise you and these are supposed to mimic the sounds of everyday life. He doesn't care that we're in this, you know, highfalutin genre of a symphony. He, he inserts sounds of daily life, of nature, into these incredibly profound... Works that are dealing with the biggest questions that humanity faces, and that's yet another one of the the dualisms, the juxtapositions that makes Mahler so phenomenal to to analyze, to listen to. But then back to the music, we we hear this fanfare once more, and this time we're in the key of C, the original key of the funeral march, and the key that will start the last movement, maybe the most important key of this symphony, and this time this fanfare is for real and it veers off into a different direction and we hear something that ends up being immensely important. So here's when we hear the third iteration of this fanfare, it's dropped back down to the key we want it to be in of C, and here's how how that sounds. So this time the fanfare wasn't just just fun and games. It leads to this apocalyptic moment which we all certainly heard. This, this chord that sounds like this. It's this kind of dissonant chord, B flat minor that explodes out of nowhere. And then from there, we hear this kind of it's like our world has been shaken it calms down a little bit and and then we hear a very important theme right towards the end of that clip from the b- brass where they play Again it's just slipped in there at the end but this will become in a very very important idea in the last movement and spoiler alert this chord this jarring moment that we heard is in fact the chord that will start the last movement the moment of apocalypse that announces this this huge finale that we we will hear shortly but that's getting ahead of ourselves we still have to get there and this movement ends, much like the first movement, it closes with, with something of a sputter. It's a fantastic coda to this movement. I encourage you to, again, listen all the way to the end. Every note of this, this symphony is is worthwhile and there for a reason. And I should mention, just in general, I'm, I'm unfortunately skimming enormously here. There's so much that I'm leaving out, but it's, it's in the interest of both simplicity and time, even though that these works are really not meant for either of those things they're meant for deep analysis and contemplation but we can still we can do our best here in the uh, and try to keep it under uh the hour limit that i've set for myself so then we we come to the fourth movement the movement which is called Urlicht and primeval light and this is actually i think it's the shortest movement it may be my favorite movement of not only this symphony, but possibly my favorite movement of all of Mahler. It's it's simple, but it's it's unbelievable. Uh, that's a hard thing to say. Though. I have a lot of favorite movements of Mahler. But this movement, we hear a singer, an alto, suddenly emerge. And so there's a text, and, and this text is very important. Anytime there's a text, it's immensely important. And this movement is going to answer the question posited by the first three movements this kind of funeral march we're faced with with death and with this calm sea of death and then the third movement asks what is really the meaning of all of this are we even capable as humans is humanity capable of making sense of of the senselessness seeming senselessness and vanity of these these questions and we're reassured in this or we get an answer in this in this fourth movement the text suggests that eternity is in fact found in in God in heaven something like that and it it transforms i mean it's a magical passage right at the beginning of this uh this movement i'll play it for you in a sec but what we hear is And then, and then, and I just want to play that for you on the piano, actually, because it's so important, that apocalyptic chord that we heard, we don't need to worry about the the technical details, but I'll just tell you, it was in B flat minor, this chord, and that's the first chord that we hear of this Ehrlich movement. that B-flat minor gets transformed to major. It happens to be D-flat major, but it's like we've taken that, all of that uh, apocalypse, all of that pain, all of that tumult, and we've transformed it into this heartwarming, what he calls primeval light. So now I... Don't let me spoil it. Listen to one of the most magical passages in all of Mahler and the brass corral that follows. Listen, no need to spoil that with, with any words. If, if you need an answer to uh, any life question, I think look no further than that incredible brass corral. That's, that's what we need in these, uh, these, these apocalyptic times right now is a little Urlicht primeval light movement of Mahler. There's one last passage I wish I would close on that, but there's one last passage I want to highlight for you because again, it's going to be so important in the last movement, and it comes towards the end of the the this movement. I'll just play that for you, and uh, we'll try to keep it in our ears as we we move into our next episode about the last movement. <laughs> yeah, we hear this passage goes we hear that many times and then importantly we hear and we'll just, we'll keep that in your ears I'll remind you again when we get to this spot in the last movement but this ultimately, that little passage will be the passage that unlocks the key to the final, final resurrection that we're looking to attain. But that is for later, that's for our next episode. Um, it's hard for me to even, to stress how how fantastic I think this piece is, and, and we've arrived at the Urlicht movement, and it wraps up so nicely. As I have encouraged you. I hope you're listening to the, the movements along with these breakdowns. As always, we'll put the timings in the time stamps. But, you know, we get to the end of this movement and it feels like all has come to rest and we've solved it. And little do we know we haven't even begun. We have to see this incredible vision of the apocalypse go through many more transformations, many more breakthroughs, refer back to earlier moments in the music, but that is is all coming up, and I hope it excites you as much as it excites me in in these. uh, And what a better and more fitting piece to listen to in what feel like apocalyptic and incredibly trying times than one that ultimately has such an incredibly uplifting, hopeful message as Mahler's second, uh, The Resurrection Symphony. So we'll join you a little later today to break down the fantastic, incredibly interesting and exciting... uh, last movement, I think you can tell I can't, I'm just sitting here alone in my self-quarantine and I can't contain the excitement to break down this, this last movement. So I'm looking forward. We'll, we'll see you shortly. And thanks as always for listening.